traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. In ancient Egyptian, the word pharaoh doesn't mean king. It actually means great house. They had no word for queen at all. All royal women were defined by their relationship to that house, with titles like great royal wife, great royal daughter, great royal mother. They were there to support, not to rule. And yet, in an ancient world where men ruled the day, Egypt saw a slew of influential females stalking the gilded royal halls. Some were royal wives and mothers, whispering in their pharaoh brother-husband's ear, and some stepped in to rule for him when he was too young to do it himself. But then others were pharaohs in their own right, beating the odds to rule alone. Who were these women? How and why did they get to be pharaohs when so many of the ancient world's major empires never suffered a woman to rule? What was life like for a woman on top, and what did they have to do to stay there? Grab your eyeliner, your vulture headdress, and that crook and flail. Let's go traveling. But first, a shout out to my patrons. My pirate queens, Emily, Get Grim Podcast, Jessica B., and Wendy. And my lady presidents, Alexis, Amy, Brendan, Ashley, Audrey, Avery, Jordan, Caroline, Cassie, Courtney, Claire, Debbie, Edie, Elizabeth, Ellie, Eve, Jackie, Jessica S., Caitlin, Karen, Casey, Kat, Catherine, Lauren, Louisa, Lindsay, Mary, Meg, Nancy, Pamela, Paul, Sasha, and Townsend. If you dig the Explorers, becoming a patron for as little as $1 a month really helps keep the show going. Plus, it gives you access to exclusive bonus episodes, sneak peeks, and more. To check it out, go to my website and click on Become a Patron. A quick note before we get started. If you haven't, make sure you listen to our first two episodes of the season on everyday life for the ladies in ancient Egypt. It'll really help you appreciate the women we're about to meet. Let's hover over Egypt for a minute and contemplate what social and political conditions are creating room for these enterprising women to rule. As we talked about in our last two episodes, Egypt is an incredibly rich nation, isolated for much of its history and cushioned by the bountiful riches of the Nile. All that wealth has made them something of a risk-averse people. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, know what I'm saying? And so they want nothing more than stability, for things to stay the same at all costs. And that means, above all, pleasing the gods. And the pharaoh is a god, or at least he's the son of one. The first father-son pharaoh duo was Osiris, remember him of the Golden Phallus? And his son Horus. The pharaohs ever after are descended from those gods by blood. That's what gives them kingly authority. But who's the one who got them onto that throne? Isis. She's the goddess who located all of her husband's pieces after the god Seth chopped him up, then used some sexy magic to literally excite him back to life. She was the key to his resurrection and to his kingship. Without her, there would never have been a royal son. 
Which all goes to prove a crucial point for ancient Egyptians. You can't have a Horus without an Isis. Royal women are divine too, connected to the gods in their own right, and they're crucial to keeping our world in perfect balance. It's from them that the royal seed actually flows, keeping the family line strong. And if Egyptians believe in anything, it's that that line should never be broken. Sometimes, when there are no men to do it, that requires a woman to rule. And guess what? Egyptians don't see them as a threat in general because these women are related to the king. As his mother or wife, she's there to help the pharaoh, not to pose him. What would she have to gain by doing away with her source of power? Having a lady beside him makes the pharaoh safer and more powerful. There's another reason the ladies make good rulers, and it's rooted in the idea that women aren't inherently violent. When a king dies and there's no obvious successor, or one who isn't old enough yet to take the reins, who would you rather have step into the power vacuum? A military warlord who's bound to start stabbing people and start expensive wars? Or a woman who is less likely to rape and pillage, and more likely to keep things on an even keel? Women are seen as bridge builders, not bridge burners, and that makes them perfect for filling a power gap. A little bit sexist? Sure, maybe. But does this attitude give women room to bust through that pyramid-shaped glass ceiling? You know it. We see women stepping up from Egypt's very first dynasty, when a gal named Merneith steps in to rule for a son who's too young to do the job. Like pretty much all of our ancient lady pharaohs, she's something of a shadowy figure. The Egyptians don't write down a whole lot of the juicy stuff. Coups, spicy rumors, or affairs. They didn't tend to leave us tell-all memoirs, so we know frustratingly little about her, other than that she ruled around 3000 BCE. If I were you, I'd go to my website and break out both the pretty timeline of ancient Egypt and the handy map I made you, as it'll help you keep these stories straight. Mernath ruled when the dynasty system was still pretty new, and being a royal was a very bloody business. Even her name is extra violent. It comes from Nath, a vicious huntress, one of Egypt's oldest goddesses, and one of its fiercest. To understand Mernith, we're going to have to slide into her slippers and make some suppositions about what her life might have been like. She grows up in luxury in a mud-brick palace. Picture cedar wood, fine imported wine, fat cuts of beef. As she gets older, she's no doubt slapping on that dark green malachite eyeliner we talked about a few episodes ago. Or, more likely, a makeup artist is applying it for her. But there's a dark side to being an early dynasty royal. Later on our timeline, we'll see royal siblings just blending into the woodwork when a new pharaoh is chosen from amongst their ranks. Most of their names don't go recorded in official chronicles, because it's unlikely they'll ever be king. Why give them ideas? Instead, they go off to do other things, and maybe that's why it doesn't seem as if they ever come roaring back to try and stage a coup. But in the beginning, when they're still sorting out the Egyptian empire, the transition from a recently deceased pharaoh to a new one is a stressful time. So all potential threats to the kingship are sacrificed to the dead king and buried with him. 
Not slaves or prisoners, mind you, but brothers, lovers, wives, sisters. And they're not to go kicking and screaming, either. Step right on up to the knife smiling, shall we? These sacrifices are meant to tell all those left behind who's in charge, and that they'd better not question it. And it seems as if it works, a royal treat. We don't know how these lucky souls are chosen. Straws? A cutthroat version of musical chairs? But hundreds of people were buried with a guy named Jer, the first king of Dynasty One, promising them a place in the afterlife. Merneath, his daughter, could easily have been one of them. Who's the biggest threat to the next king? That all depends on who's made pharaoh. Though many scholars think the transfer of power in ancient Egypt is generally straightforward, passed to the eldest royal son, we don't know for sure, and sometimes it definitely isn't. We think that a priest sometimes chooses the new pharaoh from the king's many sons in some kind of mysterious ritual. And so, Merneith has to be wondering, was she destined to die with her father or to become more powerful than ever? She's there at Saqqara to watch the Chosen killed. Her family members, friends, some 600 people, all taken. Who are they? We don't know. But archaeologists tell us that some 85% of the people sacrificed at Dejer's site were women. This is Merneith's bloody world. After that lovely little desert-side picnic, she's marched off to be a member of her new king's harem. The new king, named Dejet, is her brother, but no one's batting even one eyelash over that. Make some popcorn and let's talk about royal incest, shall we? There's a conception that it's common practice among Egyptians at large, but that's not true. Confusingly, Egyptian literature often uses the words brother and sister in love poetry as terms of endearment, kind of like saying, my dearest one. In truth, brother, sister, father, aunt style loving isn't common, except within the royal family. And they sure do marry their brothers a lot. But why? Because here's the thing. They must know this practice produces weaker babies. They can see the results with their own eyes. There are pharaohs with club feet and more than one that proves to be sterile. So why do it? Well, for one, the gods do it. There are all sorts of brother-sister pairings in our pantheon, and Egyptians are pious to a fault. But really, that's just a convenient justification. They do it because it keeps the royal seed and its power contained. You don't have to deal with meddling in-laws when you marry into your own family. You don't have to arrange any dowry for your daughters. And you don't have to worry about some distant relation or in-laws trying to move in on your throne. You know, theoretically. Just think of the English War of the Roses, which involved such a tangled web of dubiously connected family members that it ended with some son-of-a-king's half-brother riding through all those rivers of blood to be like, It's my time, bitches! Egypt's closed-loop system means we're not worrying about any of that hot mess. And okay, yes, it's fairly icky. I'm sure Merneith would agree with you. Oh, I do. I really do. But on the bright side, all this incest creates a special place for royal women. A closed system gives them multiple titles, a new kind of importance, and a whole lot of power. So there Merneith is, getting it on with her brother-husband, trying to have royal babies that might one day be king. 
Because as far as titles go, Mother of the King is one of the most potent you can grab. But she isn't the only one. Most pharaohs have a royal harem, and lady favorites outside of it. Some are given the title Ornament of the King, chosen to entertain him with singing and often scantily clad dancing, because there's nothing quite so enticing as someone doing a backbend in a thong. These women often become important members of court and take an active part in royal functions, so it's not like Mernith doesn't have competition. But then her brother-husband dies without ceremony. R.I.P. brother-husband. Leaving no sons old enough to rule. Luckily, Mernith's son is the chosen one, which means she gets to step in and keep the seat warm as regent until he's old enough to claim it himself. As much as I'd love to tell you that Egyptians are over the moon about female rulers, they aren't overly keen unless it's to help out a son, as here. In such situations, she isn't a threat. She's there to help protect her son's power, after all, and thus keep her lineage unbroken. Merneith milks that little loophole for some six to eight years. Her first job as regent is to bury her husband, and that means choosing people to sacrifice and bury with him. So she gets out that pointer finger and starts going, Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. The burial site suggests she chooses fewer people than her father and fewer women, but more people of importance. She's a quality over quantity kind of gal. She probably uses the opportunity to eliminate people she sees as threats. Young women and children are buried together, maybe because they threaten the line of succession. That's cold, Merneith. What can I say? A lady's got a rule. She and her son Den make sure that Papa DeJet has everything he'll need in the afterlife. Tools, furniture, goods, and a magic wand. Naturally, even some of his dogs are sacrificed. She also seizes this moment to leave her name all over the tomb in a brilliant ancient PR move. One stone vessel calls her, she who is united with the two lords, highlighting her role as connection between the past king and the present one. If it's carved into a fine building, then it must be true. This is a trick that Egyptian lady pharaohs will use over and over again. Here's a question. When we know so little about her, how do we even know she ruled? Because her name makes it onto some of the king lists discovered in her son's tomb. Official records of kings past and present. Yes, her name does appear with a tab that says King's Mother, but she's there. And why would she be if she didn't matter? Her tomb will be discovered in 1900 in a royal necropolis at Abydos, and the British guy who finds her will assume she's a king. It is, after all, the place where all the First and Second Dynasty kings are buried. She won't have the customary hawk hieroglyph meant to symbolize Horus, which is puzzling. But once they realize, they'll know that she must have been powerful indeed for her son to have buried her in his necropolis. Merneith isn't the only woman to be given pride of place in the afterlife by a pharaoh. Mothers, wives, and sisters are seen as crucial to the ruler in life, but also in his afterlife. When a pharaoh is buried, his most important women are often buried close by. Khufu, that guy who built one of the great pyramids at Giza, made sure to add a sumptuous pyramid next door for his mom, Heteferis. 
She was even interred with a mobile throne chair, the back of which he painted with all of her titles, one of which was, she whose every command is carried out. Large and in charge, and she's carried around on a traveling lounge chair? Heta Ferris was really living her best life. We know so little about Merneith's achievements and her struggles, but we do know that she mattered. Safe travels in the afterlife, you trailblazing queen. Acting as regent for a baby pharaoh isn't the only way into power. There are the women who come at the end of their family's line, their very last gasp before a new dynasty rises out of the sand. These women are often allowed to rule, perhaps revered as the last divine vestiges of their families, or perhaps because they don't seem to pose any threat. Again, better to deal with a lady pharaoh than the uncertainty of no ruler at all. And they allow the Egyptian elite time to sort out who will rise after her. Not glamorous, maybe, but that doesn't mean she can't make some real power moves while she's there. Because, unlike Mernice, this next woman gets to rule without a baby monarch beside her. Circa 1777 BCE, near the end of the Middle Kingdom period, she rules alone. Her name is Neferu Sobek, or Sobek Neferu, because Egyptian elites changed their fancy names more than Prince did. Though, when you think about it, it's kind of bizarre that any dynasty could run out of male heirs. For most of Egypt's history, the pharaoh has himself a harem, whose sole job it is to pop out tiny kinglets. While most Egyptians are monogamous, the pharaoh isn't. He can't afford to be. In some ways, he has the most publicly owned sex life in the ancient world. He's the royal bull of Egypt. When he engages in a horizontal tennis match, he's actually helping to father the ongoing cosmos. His sexy time keeps the world turning round. Dozens and later even hundreds of women live together in these royal harems, making sure he has an heir and about a thousand spares on the go. Lethal Lothario Ramses II will have some 50 sons during his lifetime, and that's not even counting his daughters. Neferu Sobek is born into the Middle Kingdom and Dynasty 12, more than a thousand years after Merneith was cutting people down. She is just one among many king's daughters, and she spends much of her life in the royal harem's halls. Let's step into the harem for a minute, shall we? Like ancient incest, this is another place we modern gals have trouble understanding. While you might be picturing gold chaises, silk curtains, red lights, and many orgies, you'd be mistaken. Well, mostly. In ancient Egypt, the word harem is synonymous with women's quarters. In any household, royal or not, this is the place where women live and play together. In non-royal houses, it's often a bachelorette pad where unmarried gals drink cosmos and have pillow fights in their underwear. Because that's definitely what women do in their free time. Though it must be said that, in the royal harem, there is certainly sex being had. But these women aren't considered the king's spicy side pieces. They're his wives, and with that position comes a whole lot of splendor and the chance to one day be mother of the king. The harem has its own power structure, and Nefruzebek would have been mixing and melding with girls from all over, bought in diplomatic marriages meant to smooth over hurts and build bonds with other empires. 
future 18th dynasty pharaoh Amenhotep III has at least six foreign brides in his harem, as well as a gaggle of Egyptian ones. He is also a bit of a dog, apparently, because when his Syrian bride arrives with 317 female attendants, he writes the following note to his vassals. I am sending you, my official, to fetch beautiful women, to which I, the king, will say, good. So send very beautiful women, but none with shrill voices. Bite me, Amenhotep. But even this lady-hungry pharaoh has a main squeeze, who conducts some of her own diplomatic correspondence. Her name is T, a commoner who rises up to become his number one great royal wife. The great royal wife runs things in the harem and is the highest woman on the totem pole. She, along with any sisters of the king and the mother of the king, have a definite advantage in this environment. If you're a country gal brought in to liven things up in the harem, you'd better mix your own drinks and birth nothing but girls. The royal women's quarters are confined to its own compound, usually attached to the royal palace for ease of access, complete with a courtyard featuring pools, fish, fig trees, and probably a few monkeys, a popular pet amongst harem girls. All children are housed in a nursery in a separate wing, tended to by wet nurses and nannies. A staff manages the land and property around it, as ideally it's supposed to make some money. Harem women might even run their own business, supervising female weavers. It costs a lot to feed a harem. One pharaoh apparently required 2,000 loaves of bread and 300 jugs of beer for his dinner table every evening. And he wasn't even a very rich one. The harem is run by the overseer of the secluded, who manages the scribes, attendants, and the doorkeeper, who works out the pharaoh's sex schedule. I mean, when you have dozens of ladies whose job it is to have your tiny progeny, it's easy for your knights to get double booked. To try and speed along conception, the harem girls are eating poppy and pomegranate seeds, burning incense soaked in fat, probably praying, and keeping their fingers crossed. There's a reason they're called the secluded. This is a very fine, but also very sheltered life. Many harem girls while away the time between sex sessions at the loom, weaving linen, or learning how to play instruments like the sistrum, a sacred rattle. We can only imagine what these gals get up to on a Saturday night. Ancient harem dance party! Without a whole lot to do on the day-to-day, -day, the competition here is like The Bachelor on steroids, but with the small possibility of poison. I'm sure some of these women form lasting friendships, but it is not all hair braiding and sweet secrets up in here. And a piece of advice. As a harem girl, you are not allowed to sleep with anyone besides the pharaoh. If he happens to be too young or too old and infirm, then you'll be having very little sexy time with anybody. One suspects there must have been some same-sex romance happening. Or some side action with the guards, who curiously don't seem to be eunuchs, as in other places. Maybe because they know that if they're caught, their jingle bells are gone. But harem women aren't always keen to sit back and let the gods decide their fates. They may not always have much power, but they have access, and that means they're in a better position to either influence the pharaoh, or off him, than anyone else. Members of Ramses III's harem plot to kill him as part of a palace coup, and they pull it off. 
It seems to have been led by a woman named T, though not the same one as before, who wanted her son Pentaware on the throne. In the ensuing trial, several women are accused of having made wax figures and used black magic as part of the assassination. Wait, have I heard this one before? All right, those many European witch trials. History is gross sometimes. In the end, 38 people were put to death, condemned either to kill themselves or be impaled by a spike. Choices, choices. Given the limitations of ancient medicine, the harem sees a lot of tragedy at the birthing block. Sadly, some half of royal children will die before their first year is up. Baby boys are cause for celebration, of course, but when girls appear, the party is a little more subdued. But the pregnant woman isn't blamed if she bears a girl. In fact, she isn't blamed if she can't conceive, either. Well, that's refreshing. Oh, hello? Henry VIII? Yeah, it's ancient Egypt. So about you saying you want that divorce from your wife, Catherine, because she hasn't borne you any sons? It, it isn't Catherine, man. It's you. No, no, no. Listen. It's your man-seed. It's weak. Get stronger man-seeds. Oh. He hung up. What a And so our gal Nefero Sobek appears. Her name means the beauty of Sobek, named after a fierce crocodile god who is the patron of the army, a protector of pharaohs, and, apparently, virile as all get out. The Egyptians left us so little juicy gossip, so we can only really imagine what kind of drama she's dealing with on the daily. Neferu Sobek probably grows up with her ears wide open, learning from some of Egypt's greatest schemers in the harem. They teach her how to be patient, how to be fake, how to be flexible, all skills that will serve her very well in her life to come. Sad to say, sex will be on her mind from a very early age. With a king who lives as long as her dad, Amenemhat III, Neferu Sobek will grow up expecting that she might just have to become his daughter wife. Her sister certainly does. Now that'll give you daddy issues. When dear old dad dies, he is 50 or 60, super old by ancient Egyptian standards, and yet somehow he leaves no son and heir. Maybe he outlived a lot of them, or maybe he just wasn't good at having them. We do know that a guy who will be dubbed Amenemhat IV proceeds to come out of the woodwork. Scholars debate whether he's actually the son of the king at all. At any rate, he marries Neferu Sobek, who he's in all likelihood related to, somehow, and they rule together for nine years. But then he dies once again, leaving no male heir. And so Neferu Sobek steps in, not to rule for a baby kinglet, but as the last royal family member standing. She is it, so everybody leans into it. But because she's a woman, she has to work twice as hard to prove her right to be there. So she gets busy feminizing the language of kingship. Pharaohs take on official king names, which always have a very extra five-name titulary, each piece of which defines the ruler's legacy. The oldest part is called the Horus name, asserting that the king is godly. The Nebti, or two ladies' name, shows they have claimed to both halves of Egypt. There's a golden Horus name, a prenomen, or throne name, and a nomen, or birth name. As the first official Lady King of Egypt, Neferu Sobek basically breaks the mold when it comes to her title, feminizing the language in ways it has never been before. 
Her Horus name, Beloved of Ray, is written as Herit, not Hare, which takes the falcon bird that is the symbol of kingship and makes it into a ladybird. Her two ladies' name is The Daughter of the Powerful One is now Mistress of the Two Lands. So, she's the daughter of the king and has the right to rule, and she's a lady boss. She also does what all great pharaohs do and has her image installed all over Egypt. These stele and giant images are walking billboards shouting to all who she is and why she matters. In these, she uses powerful symbols to cement her authority. Much like lady politicians do today, she knows that she needs to dress for the job she wants. She makes little attempt to mask the fact that she's a woman, but her statues show her wearing pants and the traditional Nemes headdress, the era's power suit. She might as well stand up and say, Okay, everybody, everybody, settle down. Let's get started. So I just want to make a quick statement, and it is that, yes, I am a lady, but damn it, I'm rocking these royal pants, so you're just going to have to deal with it. She also prioritizes finishing her father's tomb at Hawara, strategically putting her name all over it to visually align herself with her father. She gets to look pious, filial, and legit. Pretty smart, lady. But soon she's facing a year when the Nile fails to perform its usual magic, leading to famine and general upset. To top that off, given that she's the end of her dynasty, the nobles around her are probably forever talking about who will be next in line. It's tough to finish your performance when you can see the audience members eyeballing their watches. All we can hope is that she has her own harem to take the edge off, but she probably doesn't. A well-sculpted side piece or two at the least. So why doesn't she marry someone and have some royal children? We don't know, but it doesn't look like she does. Which is too bad, because the Egyptians consider the woman to be the keeper of the royal divine seed. Maybe the nobles around her make it clear that they won't be letting that happen. And then she dies after just four years as a lady king. We know just enough about Neferu Sobek to be tantalized by her. From what evidence there is, it seems likely that she wasn't killed by foul play and that she was buried respectfully. She even has a cult of people who look after her temple and her afterlife. And her name can be found in many king lists, marking her forever as a woman who ruled. Fast forward some 300 years to the New Kingdom and the 18th Dynasty, and we arrive at the feet of the most impressive lady pharaoh of them all, Hatshepsut. She seizes power when Egypt is soaring high and finds a way not only to hang on, but kick ass. But let's back up for a sec. In the Second Intermediate Period, that time period between Nefruzebek and Hatshepsut, Egypt becomes a divided country, one at war with the Hyksos, a Greek word for foreign invaders, from the area we now call Palestine. They swoop in and rule from dynasties 15 and 16, bringing chariots and horses and a whole lot of sass. But native dynasty 17 isn't about to lie down and take it, and it rides in on the back of some powerful women. When the 17th dynasty men march off to war, they leave a royal wife named Teddy Sherry in charge of Upper Egypt. This woman, not born to a noble family, holds down the fort, proving such an asset that her husband makes her the first queen to wear the vulture headdress of Nekbet, 
which future power-hungry queens will all want to rock. Some call her the mother of the New Kingdom. She also strongly influences her son, Sekinenre Tao, and her grandson, Amos I. Although when Amos is young, he's got another lady in his corner, his mom, Ahotep, who probably steps in and rules for him when he's too young to do it himself. This fierce regent is key to continuing to fend off the Hyksos, so much so that she was buried with military goods. She governs vast numbers of people and cares for Egypt wisely, reads Estella about her at Karnak. She has attended to its army. She has looked after it. She has forced its enemies to leave and united dissenters. She has pacified Upper and Lower Egypt and made the rebels submit. Yeah, she did. Amos I kicks off the 18th dynasty by marrying his sister, Ames Nefertari. When he dies and their son is still young, Ames Nefertari rules in his stead, helping to build a reunified Egypt in the wake of years of war. She's also one of the first royal women to hold the religious office of God's wife of Amun. Amun is one of the most powerful gods in Egypt, and his ritual wife is a high position indeed. In sum, the New Kingdom is rife from the get-go with smart ladies more than capable of running the show, and they're not afraid to go ahead and do it. But Egypt has a problem. Amos I produces no heirs. And thus, somehow, a guy named Tutmos I is named Pharaoh, probably with the help of Ames Nefertari. Is his mother royal? We don't think so. Is his father royal? No idea. But he never calls himself king's son, so probably not. Vague pedigree aside, he turns out to be an outstanding pharaoh. This warrior pushes Egypt's borders out further than they've ever gone before, crushing Nubia under his boot heel. He shocks the aristocracy by doing something entirely new. Instead of building a grand pyramid to tuck his remains in, he decides to trick any would-be grave robbers and art students keen to make themselves some mummy brown and builds his mausoleum underground. Thus, he's the first person to have a tomb in the famous Valley of the Kings, tucked away from prying eyes. And he has him a lot of royal children via his harem in Thebes. His eldest is a daughter named Hatshepsut. Her mother is Ames, the king's royal wife. A few months after she's born, Hatshepsut is taken away from her mother and given over to a royal wet nurse, who holds one of the most coveted and powerful positions a non-royal woman can have. This woman, Satre, remains close to Hatshepsut and important to her throughout her life, and is probably more of a mother to her than Ames. She grows up running around naked with other royal children in a rich and sheltered world. She might even have to shave her head to keep the lice at bay, which as far as hairdos go is probably extremely low maintenance. Though as she gets older, she isn't running around with the boys as they learn to hunt and have chariot races. She's stuck in the harem, chatting textiles and sex positions, whether she wants to be there or not. And she's a smart girl who wants to learn about the world, which probably makes her stick out from the crowd. We don't know much about her education, except that she had one the best an Egyptian can buy, and one that most women of her time aren't getting. We don't know how old she is when she gets her first job, but it's a doozy. As number one royal daughter, Hatshepsut wins herself the coveted title of God's Wife of Amun. 
Amun is incredibly powerful, and his system of temples and the people who serve him is extensive. You might say it's the ancient Egyptian equivalent of the Vatican. This position provides her with her own coin money, independence, and power. In a land that feels strongly about the gods, she has one of the highest religious posts of them all. Let's talk about religious ritual for a minute. Remember that most everyday people aren't just walking into a holy place and patting a god statue for luck or whatever. Each god has their own temples in different cities, run by priests that are mostly men. But female priestesses are also involved in servicing the gods they worship, which really is a full-time job. These temples are considered the gods' houses, and every day, priests and priestesses need to call the god into their statue, which they treat like it's an actual person with feelings and many, many needs. Hatshepsut wakes the god up in the morning with incense and rituals, then lays out a full breakfast for him to enjoy. Her duties also include exciting Amen. Yes, in a sexy way. After all, Amun's daily sexual completion helps keep the royal family going and the world turning round. As the god's wife, she's likely to spend some time shaking a sistrum for his giant statue, singing along to her favorite Beyonce song. The details of this ritual are hazy, but she might then take the statue's very large, erect member and… shake it? What you doing, Hatshepsut? Oh, you know, Amun and I are just having a little alone time. This new life is full of luxuries, but also a lot of responsibilities, requiring her attention before the sun rises and well after it sets. But it's a rare privilege to see and participate in rituals with this powerful god. These are sacred mysteries known only to a few. And it's a great place to network, a way to make connections with some of Thebes' most powerful priests. And then, somewhere around age 12, something terrible happens. Her two oldest brothers, Wajmos and Amenos, die. Given that her dad has already written Amenos's name on one of his temples, which most kings don't do until a kid is chosen as the next pharaoh, he's got to be pretty cut up about it. Everything is in chaos. Who's going to be the next one to rule? Hatshepsut is definitely the most eligible and well-connected of the harem children, but she's a girl, so a young, sickly son is plucked out of the harem and dubbed Tutmos II. If his mummy is anything to go by, this guy was not his warrior father's son in terms of physical prowess. No one seems quite pleased about this new king, and I can't imagine Hatshepsut's thrilled about him either. He's still very young, and it's clear he needs a female regent to step in and help. So in steps Ames, Hatshepsut's mother, even though she's definitely not this kid's mom. This is unusual. The mother of the king is supposed to, you know, be the regent. But maybe Ames is just too powerful a woman to be denied. She pushes to have Hatshepsut marry this half-brother and become the king's great wife. Given that Hatshepsut is descended from royalty on both sides of the family, she actually makes him look more kingly. So these two female powerhouses high-five in the throne room and get to ruling the country as best as they can. What is her relationship with her young husband like? We don't really know. But we do know she and Mom make themselves very visible and exercise a decent amount of influence over Tutmos too. If you ask me, I think they steamroll him from a very early age. 
Early in his reign, there's a rebellion down in Kush, and Ames organizes a force to go against them. All in Tutmos's name, of course. They also include their own names alongside Tutmos II's at Karnak, a pretty bold move for the time. Hatshepsut's artwork shows her doing things that usually only a king should be doing. Usually the wife is always seen standing behind the pharaoh, but Hattie is shown standing before Amun and holding out an offering without the king standing between them. Though maybe these don't ruffle any feathers, she is Amun's wife after all. In sum, Hattie and her mom are totally overpowering Tutmos too, and he's like, Ugh, fine, whatever. I'd rather ride my chariot and shoot things anyway. Eventually, Hatshepsut bears him a child, a daughter named Nefrure, whom she seems to keep closer than most queens usually keep their kids. When she gets old enough, Hattie invites a man to be her daughter's tutor. His name is Senenmut. Though this guy previously had no palace connections, he finds his way into the lady's service and suddenly is very influential. He's handling the money and advising Hatshepsut in her doings. Some say that he is also doing her, though we have no evidence that they are ever a thing. Don't we just love accusing queens of sleeping with people? But she still hasn't produced a male heir. Lucky for her, there are other harem girls to do that for her. Or unluckily, because these tiny potential kings and their mothers are a threat to her position if she can't have an heir. And then, after just three years at the top, the king dies. And so, around the tender age of 16, Hatshepsut has to fend off many wannabe pharaohs, or more accurately, the team of people rallying around them, and try to make sure the next pharaoh is one she can control. Because if she can't, her star is not going to keep rising. How the next pharaoh is chosen isn't clear. We think the statue of the god Amun selects him in some kind of ritual. As god's wife, Hatshepsut is probably there. She may even have pulled some strings with old Amun behind the scenes about this whole selection process. Regardless, a new tiny pharaoh is chosen, who will soon be known as, of course, Tadmos III. I mean, we can't exactly name him John. He's the son of a lesser wife from the harem whose name is Isis, but bizarrely, Isis doesn't step in to become the king's mother. Nope, just like her mom before her, Hatshepsut steps right up, more than ready to serve as regent. And the country seems happy to have her, even though she's not king's mother or king's wife. Perhaps because war is over, trade is starting to pick up again, and they really need a captain with a steady hand on the wheel. Hatshepsut has a very royal pedigree, and she's already proven herself as God's wife of Amun. The priests love her, and in this crucial moment, no one seems to openly question it. Ancient biographer Ineni tells us, His sister, the God's wife, Hatshepsut, was doing the affairs of the two lands with her plans. One worked for her, Egypt was with bowed head. Bow down, boys. Next week, we'll find out all about Hatshepsut's kingship and meet two more Egyptian lady bosses, a beauty queen with a fanatical boyfriend and a woman who isn't afraid to get blood on her hands. Have fun at the harem dance party! Until next time.
Thanks for listening. If you're a fan, consider becoming a patron. You'll help keep the show going and get access to exclusive bonus content, sneak peeks, and more. Just go to my website and click on Become a Patron. While you're there, check out the transcript for this episode, which includes the lady-centric timeline and special map I mentioned, plus a list of my research sources, music credits, and a ton of amazing images. Just go to www.theexplorespodcast.com. Speaking of images, come find me on Instagram at The Explores Podcast, or come play with me on Facebook or Twitter at The Explores Pod. With any questions or suggestions, just shoot me an email. I love hearing from you. Most of this episode's music was graciously provided by Derek and Brandon Fisher and Keith Zizza. You'll find links to their work in the show notes. Thanks, as always, to Mr. Explores, a.k.a. Paul Gablonski, for my theme music, logo, and the incredible ancient Egyptian map and timeline you'll find on my website. Thanks also to the following voiceover legends. John Armstrong, Phil Chevalier, Andrew Goldman, Edie Chevalier as Mernith, thanks mom, Ray Reynolds from the Woman's Planning podcast as Neferu Sobek, and Nancy Wasner as Hatshepsut. <laughs>